0: Good morning it's friday october the 20th 2023 welcome to now with dave brown coming to you on ami tv i'm dave brown let's hit the horns and go It's Friday, Friday, Friday. Coming up on the show today, the news panel comes together with Michelle McQuig and Joyita Gupta. There are 3 topics on deck including politicians behaving badly in houses of government. At what point do politicians have to be the adults in the room? Then, Quebec wants to double university tuition for out-of-province students. What's the long-term impact of that decision? Finally, governments are taking aim at short-term rentals like Airbnb. How does that fit into the broader issue of the housing crisis? That and so much more coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours. There's going to be some serious, there's going to be some fun, and there's going to be everything in between. I have had four cups of coffee this morning, so look out world. The show begins with the top story of the day. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Joly says Canada has removed most of its diplomatic presence. From India, John Kennedy has the story.
1: Officials say the move would slow down the processing of immigration applications and Canada has issued a travel advisory for regions of India where it says it's been forced to reduce consular staffing. Speaking at a news conference in Ottawa, Jolie told reporters a unilateral revocation of diplomatic privilege and immunities is contrary to international law. A clear violation of the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations and threatening to do so is unreasonable and escalatory. John Kennedy, the Canadian Press.
0: And going south- South of the border, the U.S. House of Representatives still does not have a speaker. Jim Jordan keeps trying, though. Liz Landers has the latest.
2: Jordan's other plan already failed. He floated giving the temporary speaker, Congressman Patrick McHenry, more power to buy Jordan the time to change people's minds, but talks reportedly ended in a screaming match. ABC News has learned McHenry threatened to quit if his colleagues tried to give him more power outside of his caretaker role, which he took on after former Speaker Kevin McCarthy was ousted. In the meantime, Congress remains paralyzed, unable to take up President Biden's request for Israel and Ukraine war funding, all while another potential government shutdown looms next month.
0: There will be another vote this morning, 10 a.m. Eastern Time, and this story will be related to the first topic of the news panel in about 10 minutes. Over to the economy. U.S. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell has offered some new insight on inflation and interest rates. Brian Clark recaps the speech.
3: The 3.7% rate of inflation is still too high, according to Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell. He told the Economic Club of New York that 2%
0: remains the goal.
1: The evidence of your eyes is that the economy is is handling much higher rates, at least for now.
3: The Fed has raised rates by five and a quarter points since the start of 2022.
1: That might tell you that, that the neutral rate has risen, or it may just tell you that we haven't had
0: rates high enough for long enough.
3: Powell did not say what it plans to do at its next meeting that closes November 1st. Brian Clark, ABC News.
0: Okay, that's your dose of serious for now. I promise you, seriousness will return to Now with Dave Brown in a few moments. But let's have a little bit of fun. Sprinkle in some fun on a Friday. Billboard has unveiled its list of the best pop songs ever. Jason Nathanson charts out this report.
3: The List, from Billboard, in honor of the 65th anniversary of the Billboard Hot 100 chart. Their staff picking the 500 best pop songs of all time. And at number one... Whitney Houston's I Want to Dance with Somebody, which they say features pop music's favorite topics, love, sex, dancing, and music, and also features the greatest possible singer to deliver it. Qualifications to make the list include hitting the Hot 100 at some point and fitting their definition of
0: pop in second... Dancing Queen, The Temptation's My Girl in third. Jason and ABC News, Hollywood. A solid top three by Billboard. Real good job there. I don't even know if the top spot is disputable, but let's do a little pre-daily poll chatter that is not the poll that I kind of wish I'd made the poll so early in the mix today are Laura Bain and John Lepke for this question. In your opinion, What's the best pop song ever? Laura Bain, there's some good stuff here, even in the top 10 that didn't make the top three. Number nine, Call Me Maybe by Carly Rae Jepsen. Top, top tier pop song. Number four, I Want It That Way by the Backstreet Boys. Glad to see them cracking the top five. Laura Bain, my personal favorite though. You can never go wrong with Timber by Kesha and Pitbull. But Laura, what's the best pop song ever? (laughs)
2: <laughs> oh, I don't know if I know the answer to that. I was definitely like, it's hard not to dance, though, when you hear that Whitney Houston oh. track. Now, I was given a lo- uh, look through this list this morning, and I kind of went in a different direction than you, Dave. I have a lot of like the Motown stuff down here, mm-hmm. like Supremes, Al Green, you know, Otis Redding. Oh, um, aha at number 26 with Take On Me. Perhaps a bit of a controversial pick, but I was in a public washroom the other day and they were blasting that song. I had a hard time restraining myself from just belting it out. Like, that's a good track and uh, there's a good acoustic version of it as
0: well. And a great ska version of it too by Real Big Fish. Yeah, think about a great song that's elicited a lot of covers. Yeah, that's and, and, and it passes the public bathroom test. Will you sing along in public i like that as part of the rubric part of the metrics for measurement uh john lepke what say you best pop song ever all right so the meme answer i guess is never going to
1: give you up by rick astley right like it has to be great answer um the the secondary question the secondary answer i would say is um i'd have to go with i want it that way simply because it's had such a uh you know featured on brooklyn 99 quite a resurgence as part of pop culture oh, and yeah. sink back back touring and on hot ones and doing all of these things so So I'd have to go there if I wasn't going to, uh, if I wasn't going to rickroll a a
0: national uh, television show. (laughs) I like that. Good work by both of you. Uh, This question, like I said, is not the daily poll, but I have a sense I'm going to be asking everybody this question as they pass through the annals of Now with Dave Brown on a Friday morning. There is, however... A real daily poll at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. On Facebook on Thursday, you were asked, what is the most underrated region to visit in Canada? 14% of you said the Prairies, 43% of you said the North, 29% of you said the Atlantic, and 14% of you said other. And Carla chimes in on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. This is a great answer. The Kootenays In southeastern British Columbia, good answer, good answer, Carla. It's like family feud. Good answer, good answer. Put it on the board. The Kootenays, well done. Interior mainland, top, top tier. Okay, back to the serious. Today's Daily Poll, this is going to be a topic of conversation in about four minutes on the news panel But politicians behaving badly in the halls of government, a lack of decorum, a lack of professionalism. Do you have any tolerance for politicians behaving poorly in the halls of government? Think, you know, the Senate, the legislature, Parliament, Congress... Straight up. Yes or no. I'm forcing you into a binary here. Yes or no. Do you have any tolerance for politicians behaving poorly? I think you kind of know my answer, but I'm keeping my powder dry for the next segment. John Lepke, what's your level of tolerance for politicians behaving poorly?
1: Uh, So I'll start this with a a story, a quick one, I promise, which is that you know this is such a long standing issue i remember when i when i lived in britain i went to the house of parliament and you you'd go to the house of commons and they'd be screaming at you and they screaming at each other and then you'd go to the house of lords and they'd all be sleeping so it's all <laughs> relative types of this type of thing. Um, I, I think that I, I just tune out. I especially don't have time for these yelling matches are, are often quite gendered. Uh, we have one in our provincial legislature right now over the pronoun policy. Uh, there's no need for it. But there's also uh,
0: 600 years of folks like this screaming at each other. So I don't know how we stop it. Mm, uh, Fair point. Fair point. Six six centuries of misbehavior uh, that even precedes the foundation of democracy. I I feel you there, John. Laura Bain, what about you? What's your level of tolerance for politicians behaving unprofessionally in the halls of government?
2: Well, you know, I really struggle with with binary answers, Dave, and so I'm looking forward to the news panel who will give a much more nuanced response than I could ever give. If I have to say yes or no, I, like I'm going to say no, I don't have a lot of tolerance for it, but with the caveat that I, I think it really depends on what we're meaning by bad behavior, I... I I wouldn't want to necessarily include people speaking passionately or forms of protest in that. I think, you know, what John said there about we don't want people screaming at each other, but I also don't want people sleeping. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, So I, I do have some tolerance for like, I don't care about language. I don't care about speaking passionately. I don't have any tolerance for bullying, name calling, things like that,
0: though. Yeah, I, 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 you're right to sort of ask the methodology, right? What constitutes poor behavior? I would say things like deliberate obstruction, sort of what's going on right now in the United States, which is you have to be adults in the room. You've got to get together and actually pass some policies here. And it would be sort of the same thing in the, in, in the Canadian House of Parliament, where it's one thing to, you know, be banging on the table and screaming here, here. But there comes this point where you have to be able to collectively get work done. And that's not what's happened happening in the United States right now. I said I would keep my powder dry, but I just poured a bit on the table right here. But you'll hear more in just a couple of minutes. In the meantime, you can vote at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can also chime in via email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca or you can give the show a phone call and you can express a lack of decorum on the voicemail line, one 509 4545 one 509 4545 Coming up next, this conversation continues in regards to the behavior of politicians in houses of government. At what point do politicians have to be adults in the room? Michelle McQuig and Judah Gupta will weigh in with their thoughts as the news panel gets together. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMITV. tv Welcome back it's now with dave brown on ami tv it's friday so that means the weekly news panel gets together before i welcome in the panelists let's set up the first topic all about politician behavior things are deteriorating in the united states congress as their house still can't find a speaker jim ryan files this report Nebraska Republican Don Bacon was a hard no on Jim Jordan, and he says someone texted and called his wife, warning her if he didn't switch his vote, they'd help vote him out of
4: office. Trying to bully my wife is is wrong.
0: Iowa Republican Marionette Miller-Meek says she received credible death threats after voting against Jim Jordan. Jordan saying he had nothing to do with those calls or texts and condemned them. Andy Field, ABC News, Washington. Meanwhile in Canada, parliamentarians are being told to button up their behaviour by new speaker Greg Fergus. Lisa LaPorte.
5: Fergus rose before a question period on Wednesday to say behaviour in the House has deteriorated over the years. He says heckling from MPs intended to intimidate and drown out others has become boorish, rude and insulting. Fergus, who was elected Speaker at the beginning of October, says while he's committed to protecting MPs' freedom of speech, questionable language and provocative statements will not be tolerated. Lisa Laporte, the Canadian Press.
0: Okay, let's bring in the panelists for the news panel, Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Hello, Joita.
6: Hello, Dave.
0: And hello, Michelle.
6: Hello, both of you.
0: Okay, I've only got one core question for this segment, and we can pull at the threads and tug a little bit back and forth as we go, but the core question, Joita, at what points do politicians have to be adults in the room with their behavior? I acknowledge there's a difference between parliamentarians being told to maybe not shout at each other as much or bang on the table a little bit less, but when you're talking about a U.S. House of Congress, a House of Representatives that cannot get business done because they voted out their speaker two weeks ago can't get a new speaker in like there's a war in eastern europe there appears to be the possibility of a war breaking out in the middle east there's economic strife like joita there's serious business to be done here at what point do these folks need to be adults in the darn room
5: at the point at which they stop doing work and i think that's what everyone is now wringing their hands over it's uh really interesting to see how jim jordan is is himself a very polarizing figure, you know, Donald Mm -hmm. Trump supporter Mm -hmm. and someone who uh, claimed that Trump, uh, that that Biden had not won the 2020 elections. And there's all kinds of baggage that go along with Jim Jordan. And then you've got people in his camp who are going around issuing threats and, um, you know, targeting um, other representatives saying, if you don't switch your your vote, uh, your family, you know, we'll, we'll make sure you yourself cannot get reelected or, you know, going after their, their spouses. That sort of thing is beyond shocking. I mean, there's a big difference between banging on the tables and saying here, here, and then getting into the realm of issuing threats. And so when you start to think about the U.S. House of Representatives, they've gone through I don't know. At, at, at least the, the Kevin McCarthy uh, was elected speaker in January. It didn't last a year. And yeah. then even the people before that, two speakers before that, did not go through the full extent of their term. And they got pushed out because of the ascendance of hard right-leaning politics in the House. And I think it's uh, it's it's very tempting to say that it's largely going uh, owing to the fact that people are not acting like adults in the room, that we cannot seem to get any work done or they cannot seem to get any work done in the House of Representatives. But I wonder if the underlying causes are a little more troubling mm. uh in that it really speaks to something that we've talked about extensively on this panel, which is the polarization of politics, yeah. especially in the United States and to an extent, in Canada.
0: Yeah, Juita, if I were to get a little bit conspiratorial, I might argue the fact that there's a lot of Republicans in Congress that don't care that Congress isn't doing its business, that this is sort of them doing a de facto government shutdown without mm-hmm. it being called a government shutdown. But it really is like a gross manipulation of a political system. These folks— swear to abide by the Constitution, and the American Constitution deliberately makes democracy hard. That said, you're supposed to grapple with these things in good faith, and I feel like the last couple of weeks have not been good faith grappling with the operation of government. Again, because of the real serious issues that exist here, I don't want to like engage in too much fear-mongering, but there is a pretty significant war happening in Eastern mm-hmm. Europe, and there's a really serious situation going down in the Middle East right now that could escalate if, like, adults don't show up here. Uh, Minority House leader Hakeem Jeffries, so he represents the Democrats, did float last week on the Sunday shows. Hey, we're talking about maybe forming a bipartisan coalition to get business going in Congress, but, like, that hasn't moved at all this week, because not enough Republicans are interested in doing that. And it should be noted, it would really only take about 20 Republicans to do that, right? Like, but they don't want to give the Democrats the power of the gavel in the Mm -hmm. House. Sorry, Michelle, that's my big, long preamble of asking you, the General Generalized question. <laughs> At what point do these folks need to be adults in the room?
6: Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. In that, I, I, honestly, I would argue always politicians have a pretty big job. They're in charge of some very important things. A, a lot of the shenanigans in the House of Commons, so the decorum issues that were raised by Greg Fergus, uh have actually bugged me for a long time because it's just so unruly. If you listen to any part of question period, you feel like you're in a kindergarten class. And it's, it's truly. Uh, <laughs> pretty striking in that respect and even the, I, I don't know if you anyone caught this part but even as greg fergus was trying to issue this call for better decorum and peace in the in the, in the house of commons he's being heckled by yes. the opposition yes. 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 like it was just yes. like they were they were yelling at him for postponing question period which they were describing as sacred no joke and then and he's literally just saying i'm just trying to make a statement calling for better order and it was it, like it was Mm-hmm. You talk about adults in the room. It was juvenilia at its finest on, with this particular speech with Greg Fergus. But obviously, you're right. The stakes are so much higher in the House of Congress in the States right now. The situation is particularly uh, bleak because the uh, the whole crisis triggered by this House speaker issue was the, the possibility of a government shutdown. And the House did manage to push through a 45-day extension during which they were supposed to negotiate a better deal. They can't even do that because they can't. You literally cannot do any business without a house speaker, and they don't have one. And two weeks of those forty-five days have now elapsed. So we're likely to see this circus. Even if they if they got a speaker elected today, we're still likely to find ourselves back in a similar place in a month's time. And this kind of haggling will will go on, and it's it's really dispiriting. I I, I hate what it does to democracy. I hate what it does to attract future political talent. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's it's.
0: Everything. Michelle, I, I like I like that word. I like that descriptor, dispiriting. Joita mentioned that political polarization is a theme that oftentimes gets explored on this panel. One of the other ones oh, yes. is distrust. Guilty as charged. No, but that, but That's okay, because it's, it's real, right? We're having real conversations here in nuanced ways. But one of the other themes that we pick up on frequently is the growing distrust and dissatisfaction with institutions. And, Joita, I really feel like when you get stories like this, or as Michelle points out, the juvenility in Parliament, and it even happened in the Ontario legislature this week with Sarah Mm -hmm. Jemma. Like, it was like, I don't want to get into it, but it was was pretty nasty what happened to Sarah Jemma because she Mm -hmm. weighed in on the conflict in Israel um, and had, I guess what you would call, um, less of a populist opinion on it and, like, demands for apologies and shouting in the legislature nature mm-hmm. th- what i think about stories like this juita and like politicians behaving poorly it makes me think it only further creates distrust in the institution of government
5: yes it does and you know one of the things that i think about in relation to that is the fact that you know it has been noted that heckling and a certain amount of rowdiness is par for the course as part and is part of the parliamentary process and that's all well and good but if you think back to even 50 years ago the halls of power or what the parliament actually looked like was very different and so you mm-hmm. would have you know in a place like the uk or even here in canada and please tell me if i'm wrong about this but you would have you know a whole bunch of white men shouting at each other that sounds and, right <laughs> and 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 and, yep. and now yep. and this is not a bad thing And now you have, of course, more women in legislature. You have more people of color. And so what happens when the people in the room change? And when does that dynamic stop being, you know, well, this is just how we've always done things and start to take on undercurrents of sexism or racism? Like it is very poignant that we had this spectacle go down with Greg Fergus, Yes. Uh, as the first black man. First black speaker. Yeah. First black speaker. And and this is you know, you will you'll say you 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 may I suppose fairly accuse me of playing identity politics, but at the same time, it does matter. It would matter to me, for example, as a person with a disability, if we had a speaker with a disability who got shouted down. Now you could try to make the argument, well, you know, that's just how it was always done, but there's a difference when you turn around and heckle somebody from a traditionally marginalized group. Mm. That was one thing I had to say. And the other thing that I wanted to say, which picks up on the point that Michelle made about how juvenile this behavior can actually become. And I have to say that the CTV reporting on this has been interesting and has itself stirred up a bit of controversy because in the past, if you heckled, In the house of commons you could get away with it because for all intents and purposes you were anonymous most reporters even if they were present would not focus on the hecklers right and if you were at home watching tv the camera is not pointed towards the heckler it's pointed towards the speaker or you know whomever whomever else this time the ctv reporting actually called out people as hecklers which is unusual and so people may realize that we have turned a corner saying that this sort of behavior isn't going to be sheltered by the anonymous, the fact that you get to, for all intents and purposes, remain anonymous. What happens in question period stays in question period? Well, apparently it doesn't anymore. And maybe that is what is going to cause people to be shamed and cause people to, if not change their behavior, then certainly moderate
0: it. Yeah, the idea that question period was some sort of Las Vegas where you could just sort of do whatever you wanted to and then come back <laughs> and just go see your uh, your GP for a quick checkup. Uh, yeah, I I, I see where you're getting at there, Joita. But Michelle, I want to come back to distrust and the sowing of distrust and the dispiriting that you were talking about because I really, I am one of these people. I'm an institutionalist and I believe in the value of government and the importance of government because that's all we have to make good effective policy that can solve significant social strife in our countries and around the world like i believe in democracy here's the hot take for a friday morning but it does strike me michelle that this complete lack of collaboration like not even just the polarization but i mean like a lack of collaboration mm-hmm. to yep. understand yep. the common goals and the common good that rousseau used to write about in the in the framing of democracy in the 17th century Ooh. like I, like I think this is what i think really gets me about distrust and dispiriting and the distrust in the institution of governments.
6: Nice intellectual shout out there. No, you're right though. And it, this, this cannot, and will not help. I, I, it, every, every year, it seems at some point on this panel, I find myself asking myself at what point do we reach sort of super saturation on, on political cynicism? Like what mm, more can mm. be done to erode, <laughs> public goodwill towards politicians and politics itself uh, to, to make people... Like, I think we're now at the... We're, we're reaching that point, if not there. Have you, in recent memory, gone through an election and gotten excited about a candidate or said, you know what, I'm I'm pretty sure this guy intends to keep their promises. I don't think we see any of that any longer. Um, and this sort of conduct, this, this whether it's actually bogging down democracy and refusing to get government business done or just acting really unruly and disrespectful. Uh, Joita raises a really interesting point about what happens when the dynamics change. And I hope someone writes a sociology thesis or a political science thesis on that someday, <laughs> because I think it's a fascinating question, uh, truly. But uh, none of these things are, are likely to, to help in any way. And it's I find it always quite interesting that politicians don't seem to be willing to do the, the work to refurbish their own reputations in that sense.
0: Michelle, you asked a question there, and I don't, I th- I'm do not i sure it was rhetorical, but if I could express even just a little bit of optimism here, just, just for the sake of putting a bow please. on this with some sort of optimism. On a rainy
6: Friday, we could use some optimism, on
0: a, yes, On please. a rainy Friday, Friday in southern Ontario, where it's so dark outside, let me oh, express just a, little, a little <laughs> bit of optimism on the way out the door here. You talked about a politician who maybe I'm excited about or optimistic about. In the regional news Ooh. update, in about 35 minutes, I'm going to have a story out of the prairies where Wab Canoe, the new premier Wab of Manitoba, Canu. Okay. has been sworn in, but I'm not going to talk about his politics per se or the cabinet that he appointed. I'm going to talk about the fact that he has appointed a number of cross-departmental and ministerial committees that are looking to find holistic solutions to things like gender-based violence, poverty, economic development. So even just a politician who is thinking about holistic issues holistically and developing cross, mm-hmm. cross-department committees— mm-hmm. I like that like like that makes me optimistic yeah
6: and that's a different or at least different enough page in the playbook to stand out you're right that that's part of it too is right what we see all these cycles where politicians sing for the same song sheet every single time the same ministries are formed the same players are involved there's very little uh there seems to be little appetite for trying to change the fundamental ways in things get done so that you're right that is an encouraging sign from wap canoe
0: joita i know michelle asked a rhetorical question and it's okay if the answer is no but do you have an answer about optimism in politics
5: Yes, I actually do feel very optimistic about it because I think even 12 months ago, we may not have uh, asked this question or if we had asked this question, we wouldn't have asked it as publicly as we have. And I think the fact that, as I alluded to the CTV reporting, the fact that we are now at a stage where this is being tagged as bad behavior and not just as business as usual is a good sign. Change is always slow to come, but change is coming. And I think we are making progress. We've uh, You you mentioned Bob Canu, uh, the first Indigenous Premier in the country, and uh, Greg Fergus, and many more women in politics. So as the people in the room change, I think the dynamics will change. But we are up against some very entrenched beliefs and entrenched ways of doing things. Uh, but I think that as the people in the room change, change and as attitudes change, you may not always feel that the change is obvious or evident, Mm. but it is happening. And I think maybe maybe in 30 years' time, we'll be having a different conversation, but who's to say?
0: It seems appropriate that on a morning when I asked what's the best pop song of all time, that Joita's out here quoting uh, Sam Cooke and Otis Redding with Change Is Gonna Come. Yes, Change Is
5: Gonna Come, I was just about to say. Well
0: done, well done by (laughs) you. You Nice work, Little optimism (laughs) on the way out the door in this one. Well done, well done by you two, but there's more to come on the news panel. Coming up next, Quebec wants to double university tuition for out-of-province students. What's the long-term impact of that decision? This is the NOW News Panel on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I am Dave Brown. It's Friday, October the 20th, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Netflix dropped a miniseries by Mike Flanagan. Michael McNeely reviews The Gothic, The Fall of the House of Usher. Usher, baby. And Drake has released his son's first rap song and music video, Is he helping his son's future career or being just a little bit exploitative and leaving him open to criticism from Dave Brown? Laura Bain addresses that question in the Entertainment Report. But the hour begins with the regional news update. Beginning in British Columbia, Canada's largest private sector union has begun releasing union cards to Amazon workers in Metro Vancouver. Unifor says Amazon employees can sign the cards as a step towards unionizing. The union says it started a campaign to bring Amazon workers into the fold back in June. Unifor wants to replicate what Amazon, 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 Amazon employees did in New York in terms of forming a union. Over over to the prairies, I alluded to this during the news panel, Manitoba Premier Wab Canoe has formed cross-departmental committees to address some of the top issues facing the province. The areas of focus, poverty reduction, economic development, reconciliation, gender-based violence and child welfare. canoe says all those issues require broad-based solutions that demand collaboration. Over to Ontario. Following up from yesterday, teachers in Ontario's English Catholic school system have voted 97% in favour of a strike mandate. Emily Chavesky has more.
6: The Ontario English Catholic Teachers Association says Catholic teachers are prepared to do whatever's necessary to reach an agreement. Teachers unions have been bargaining with the government for more than a year in the hopes of landing a deal, but the Catholic teachers union says progress has been slow. Public elementary teachers represented by the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario have voted 95% in favour of a strike, although there's no plans yet for job action. Emily Joveski, the Canadian Press, Toronto.
0: And over to the Atlantic region, Nova Scotia is investing $100 million over the next three years to speed up training and recruitment of skilled workers. Premier Tim Houston says the goal is to add up to 5,000 new apprentices in the provincial system. The investment includes $40 million in various grants and incentives for students, apprentices, and employers. That's your look at the regional news. Let's say hello to Brock Richardson for a sports chat. Ah, the Major League Baseball playoffs are officially interesting again. The Arizona Diamondbacks slithered past the Philadelphia Phillies 2-1. It was an awesome game, nip and tuck, and Phillies manager Rob Thompson agrees with me.
7: It was a great ball game. It could have gone either way, you know. I mean, what are you going to do? Uh, I'm not going to think about it that way. I'm going to think about coming in here tomorrow and getting ready and getting ready to compete.
0: Diamondbacks manager Tory Lavello had a lot of praise for Cattell Marte. Marte had the game-winning hit in the bottom of the ninth.
8: The key to that 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 inning was was Perdomo walking and handing it off to Cattell um, but Cattell thrives in that situation um, he just has a heart of a lion he wants to get the job done and and be the main guy to help his team win a baseball game
0: they're not the heart of a lion they're the diamondbacks it's a heart of a snake the Houston Astros walkered the Texas Rangers 10-3 in the American League that series all square now as well holy smokes Brock baseball went from being really boring two days ago to really interesting going into the weekend the life of baseball is just, you know, that's the
7: way it goes. I want to shout out Arizona Diamondbacks pitcher, uh, Brandon Fott, who is a young pitcher who pitched really, really well. And I could hear some Blue Jays fans going, see, it happens to them, too, where he got taken out a little bit early in the game. But that's because his numbers third time through the order going back to the top of the lineup We're not so good. So I agree with this decision, even though they did get one run scored on them as soon as he got taken out. These are the things that happen in baseball, but it all worked out. And I am loving the Arizona Diamondbacks. I Listen, you're Descorial Jr. Like, let's do something, you know, do something good here. He's playing well for them. It's just really, really good. I hope they even this thing up. Do you like the style of the two games that, one place three games at the other and then two back again because this has been some topic for discussion
0: i do, like, do like i do like the baseball playoff format two games at home three games on the road two games back at home for the uh favored team or for the higher seated team i think there's something to it brock i actually wonder if it's too much of an advantage for the road team or for the for the underdog team going into a series but i i kind of like it i like the continuity the nba used to do this in the playoffs as well the 2-3-2 format i there's something to it it really rewards the underdog if you can win a single game on the road in the first two that's the thing if you can win a single game on the road i i think it
7: sort of puts a little bit more pressure on the home team to say take care of business at home and then it doesn't really matter what happens you know in the middle three games because we're coming back irregardless and so for me I love this but you're right it does give a little bit of uh it does give a little bit of an advantage if you can manage a split which is often what the road team yeah. says in most seven game series as well the other thing I the other thing I want to shout out from the Houston Astros game is uh, maybe uh Marcus Simeon who got picked off at first base on a liner in the game, should tuck in his batting gloves in his pocket because that's the reason he got picked off is because the batting gloves are part of your equipment and they were hanging out of his pocket and that's what the uh, first baseman ended up tagging to get him out. So Mm. a little bit of a lesson learned in yesterday's game, tuck your things in your pocket because maybe that would have helped and that kind of killed the rally for them last night when he got picked off first base on a pretty much a screaming liner towards
0: first base a uh, game of inches, and uh, Brock doesn't like wardrobe malfunctions. Fair enough. Well put. Let's look ahead to the weekend. Brock, baseball continues, but you've also got football on the brain. Sunday afternoon, a little more quiet on the NFL front because there's six teams on a bye week, but there's a pretty interesting marquee matchup between the Detroit Lions and the Baltimore Ravens. Yeah, I want to
7: see, are the Detroit Lions for real They've only got one loss on the season. And what are the Baltimore Ravens? This is a good test for the Baltimore Ravens. Are they going to come to fruition? This is going to be a good one o'clock Eastern game. I would imagine the Lions will pull this one through, but I'll be curious to see what Baltimore does because they're supposed to be Above at the upper echelon of the AFC when all things are said and done. So let's see what happens. Baltimore's Um,
0: offense remains extremely constipated. It just seems they cannot produce points. They're making a lot of tactical errors, they're turning the ball over, they're fumbling. Even their quote, most accurate kicker of all time, Justin Tucker, has been missing a lot of field goals this season. Their wide receiver core is just dreadful. Other than their rookie Zay Flowers, it's pretty much painful to watch them try. To catch the ball as a group of wide receivers. Uh, Baltimore, I've been uninspired by thus far, Brock, whereas Detroit, on the flip side, I was. Talking about them last week to you, maybe the best offensive line in football, developing very quickly into one of the best defensive lines in football. Their offensive coordinator, Ben Johnson, is an offensive genius, and he just schemes guys open all over the field. And you're talking about a number one overall pick in Jared Goff, who was uh, booted out of Los Angeles a couple years ago and I think has a little bit of that chip on his shoulder. I also think Detroit uh, might be giving Baltimore a tough time on Sunday afternoon.
7: And this will be the game, honestly, Dave. Where I where I look at Detroit and say, "Okay, I buy what you're selling to me now." If they can come in and and really take care of business as they should, I, this will be the game where I say, "Okay, Detroit, I see you, and I believe in what you're doing here." So that will be my. Wait, that, wait.
0: Them beating this defending Super Bowl champions week one of the season didn't do that for you. No. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Then, Uh, (laughs) Brock, then you get to the primetime (laughs) game on Sunday. The Philadelphia Eagles and the Miami Dolphins, my Miami Dolphins, my uh, five and one Miami Dolphins, who. Tried to throw the game away last week against Carolina, but thankfully Carolina is so bad, the Dolphins were able to overtake them um, in the end. Brock, this is a marquee matchup. Philadelphia coming off a bit of a tough loss. Miami coming off an underwhelming performances, But both these teams looking i mean okay philadelphia went to the super bowl last year so that's probably their aspiration miami's probably just looking for their uh first playoff win in 20 years uh that's probably what miami's looking for but yeah i i you know I, this is a marquee matchup on on sunday night primetime football and certainly there's going to be a, a lot of focus on whether or not the dolphins can actually beat a good team because they've been feasting on a lot of bad teams
7: yes i, I you know This is another one of those games where I look at Miami and I say, you know, are you guys going to be where you want to be? I I would say to you that I think Miami can win more than one uh, playoff game, but everything has to click for them. And you're right. They've been feasting on some bad teams and we'll see how it goes. But this is the one that I have really highlighted on my schedule this week beyond the detroit lions and baltimore ravens this is the one for me okay let's see who are you both and how do you both both these teams match up against really really good teams let's see yeah they're both on one end of the spectrum ones in the afc and nfc and let's see where they kind of yeah. At each other here.
0: Miami's defense has been underwhelming all year, and I think Philadelphia is probably going to shred it. Uh, you saw that your Buffalo Bills did that a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, Miami's defense isn't very good. The one note here is that Philadelphia is dealing with some pretty significant injuries. Their star right tackle, Lane Johnson, left last Sunday's game against the New York Jets, and that's when problems started for Philly. He's been limited in practice all week. I expect he'll play on Sunday night, but at what capacity will be interesting? So, Philadelphia's got some bumps and bruises to uh, take care of, whereas Miami's a smidge healthier and they play with a lot of speed. Be interesting to see uh, if they can actually utilize that speed because Philadelphia has drafted a lot of fast players for the better part of uh, the last three or four years. So this might be one of those teams where Miami can't just beat in a track race. Okay, let's go over to hockey real quick here. NHL only one game to feature here oilers and jets the edmonton oilers and the winnipeg jets saturday night 10 p.m eastern time the oilers got humiliated by the philadelphia flyers last night a 4-1 loss connor mcdavid reflects on the team's early season struggles
3: we all have uh, another level to get to uh, we haven't been there uh, yet this uh, this season um You know, lucky for us, it's only four games. But with that being said, it's been four games, so um, it's time to uh, it's time to you know put our best best foot forward here and
4: and, uh, and start playing good games.
0: Yeah, four games represents about 5% of the season. It doesn't sound like a lot, but those percentages add up quick, Brock, and the Oilers, I mean, listen, Philadelphia is not a good hockey team. And and neither, is the, neither are the Vancouver Canucks. And the Oilers have actually were given a pretty easy schedule to start the year, and they are really stinking up the joint. No, and I would argue, I know we're talking about Saturday's game here, but I would argue
7: that last night against Philadelphia, Edmonton beat themselves. They had like four turnovers that resulted in three goals out of those four turnovers. Like you cannot beat yourself in this league. I I know Philadelphia is not a great team, but when you give them those kind of turnovers on, you know, on a platter, they're going to score on you. And they proved that they're going to do that. Winnipeg, uh, listen, they're also sort of off to a bit of a struggle, but this is why this is a good game. Edmonton, you should take care of business here, but... You really need to clean up some stuff that we know you can be better at. And I'm looking for Winnipeg to be pretty inspired come Saturday with wanting to play the Edmonton Oilers because everyone keeps saying Edmonton's going to be that Canadian team on the west side. So people are going to come up and want to play. So let's see, does Edmonton rise up and play better or does Winnipeg really take advantage of
0: a wounded dog right now? Brock, have a nice weekend. Enjoy all the sports. You as well. That's Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk. Coming up after the break, Drake, you know him. Well, he released his son's first rap song and music video. What do you think? Helping his son's future career or leaving him in a position to be mocked by Dave Brown? Laura Bain will address that question in the Entertainment Report. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The entertainment report is coming your way in about four minutes. But first, here's John Lepke with the weather story of the day. John, even that sound effect uh, implies some cold winds and weather moving around the country, and that's what you've got on your brain today.
1: Yep. I don't even think the billboard uh, charts that we were talking about earlier could could prepare us for the cold that inevitably comes. You know, there's an old adage that the only two things you can guarantee in life are death and taxes. But thanks to today's story, I'd like to add Canadian winter temperatures worthy of complaining about. (laughs) Earlier this week, Eureka Nunavut, what a great name, by the way, was the first area of Canada this fall to record a temperature of minus 30 or lower. Significantly further south, the Weather Network is reporting that this weekend will bring with it the first frost warnings of the year for the GTA, along with an Alberta Clipper, a weather event known for being temperamental and dragging rain and snow along with it, despite sounding to me more like a Western Canadian helicopter. By the end of the weekend, southern Ontario should see precipitation between 5 and 20 millimetres. Wind will also be part of the next few days, with gusts up to 30 kilometres an hour expected in lakeshore areas. So,
0: in other words, grab your raincoats and don't leave what's left of your garden vegetables out to freeze. (laughs) John, a little stand-up comedy there. Uh, He'll be here uh, at least for the rest of the week, at least for the next 40 minutes, so don't forget to tip your server and try the veal. (laughs) Oh, that was bad. Okay, I I was just trying to get in your spirit of a stand-up comedian. In a minute, Laura Bain will talk all about Drake's son's new song. But first, OnePlus is dipping their toe in the foldable phone waters. Mike Dabuski has more in Tech Trends.
3: The OnePlus Open is the brand's first foldable, but 9to5Google's Ben Schoen says it's mechanically identical to a device sold in China.
8: The OnePlus Open is really just a global version and a U.S. version of the Oppo Find N3 foldable, which is sold in China.
3: Oppo is known for its foldable devices, and Shon says that's evident in the OnePlus phone. Hardly any display crease. It's got a very strong hinge that can withhold like a million folds and unfolds. On the software side, the Open will let users run up to three apps at once. But nothing feels tight or restrictive. You kind of really just have all this room. You have the whole screen to work with, even if you are using three apps at once. It starts just under $1,700, undercutting foldables from Samsung and Google, but Shone says there's a catch. You can't finance it through your carrier, and that's that's really where most people buy their phones now. With tech trends, I'm Mike Debuski, ABC News.
0: I can't imagine that I live in a world where $1,700 is considered undercutting the phone market thank you very much for that story mike laura bain drake is making some headlines with his music in the entertainment world but it's not quite his music
2: yeah um so today we're talking about uh about his son adonis graham who's six years old and in celebration of his sixth birthday drake released uh his son's first rap video and and uh and song called my man freestyle so the video has only been out for four days it already has 1.5 million views you can also stream it on uh, on Apple music and on spotify of course and uh you know i don't know what to say about this i'm i'm definitely not going to criticize a six-year-old he's super cute um the song is a little repetitive but i, I found it got stuck in my head you know i've been listening to it and uh found myself singing it which i can't personally necessarily say about any of the tracks on his dad's latest album but uh i know you might be a little a little have different opinions on that but what do you think dave are you adding my man freestyle to any of your playlists i
0: mean we're putting dave brown in the position to start criticizing six-year-olds which i don't want to get in the habit of doing but this song is bad oh my gosh it's terrible i think this would be like really adorable for like the drake family to be uh sending around in the group chat or on whatsapp or something i don't know this music video was obviously professionally produced so that means you know ideally somebody got paid to do it but i also feel like maybe that money could have gone to a local food bank or something to you know take care of some people rather than just a glamour project for drake's son to just do a terrible rap song also like when I say terrible rap song, I'm talking about this poor six-year-old and his lyrics. The beat is amazing. And I feel like they really wasted a great beat here on a terrible rap song. So, Laura, I'm not going to be adding this one to my playlist. and I can't say that I'm uh, particularly fond of this song at all. I'm also, like, a little uncomfortable. Like, this feels a smidge exploitative to me. Um, I'm, I'm generally uncomfortable with parents sort of using their kids for, like, clicks and views and picks and stuff. I... I I, it just seems like representative of a very look, look at me, Louis culture that we live in, and I know that I say this as someone who hosts a television show, so like I, I get there's some irony that needs to slide between my teeth as I say that
2: yeah you know i had a lot of the same thoughts about this and i don't know if they wasted it because they did use it on one of the tracks on uh for all the dogs on daylight it shows up kind of at the end of that track uh if memory serves me correctly but yeah i felt you know this would be a great thing to maybe show at his birthday party as a real novelty for his friends but yeah i thought given the given like the reach of his platform I was just a little bit, I don't know if I'd use the word uncomfortable, like uh, exploitative. I was just a little uncomfortable with, you know, sharing that because he can't undo it. And how is he going to feel about it when he's grown up? Maybe he wants to release his first song. Oh, that already happened when he was six, right?
0: You know, there's also a difference in a time and era, right? When maybe Lil Bow Wow broke out uh, a couple decades ago or Raymond Simone broke out like three decades ago. That'll make you feel old real quick when you find out that like Raven Simone is... (laughs) Like, almost the same age as you. Um, Mm -hmm. It was just a different world, right? In the online space now, there's just so much hate, and there's always going to be haters. I think you could tell that I tried to be a little reserved in my criticism of Port Adonis. That is not the case on social media or the comment section. Like, you're really dangling your kid out there to be quite a punching bag in a mean universe. It almost goes back to this decorum conversation from the first hour. People be acting a fool out there, Laura.
2: Yeah, and I did notice it seemed like Drake had comments turned off on this video, which Smart. I think is is, a, is a, a good choice. I mean, if this was my kid and they did that, I would love it. But absolutely, the the internet is not a kind place. The comment sections tend to be real, real dumpster fires. So I don't, I don't think I would want to put my kid out there to sort of have to cope with that very adult uh, yeah. level of of criticism. That's I, it's hard for it's hard for us to cope with, you know, um,
0: let alone a six year old. You know, I do want to end this on a little bit of positivity, though. I don't just want to spend this whole segment, uh, you know, being mean to poor six-year-old Adonis. A few weeks ago, Drake dropped his album, and the first single on the album I really didn't like. I really wasn't fond of, and I expressed mm-hmm. that on the air with Amanda Shikarchi, uh in her entertainment report. I just said I was kind of bored of what Drake was doing. I want to offer up a little flip side and a little love here, because Drake dropped another song called First Person Shooter that got to number one on Billboard this week, and... It's pretty spectacular. So, I've actually got a clip here that Canadian Press provided of uh, 25 seconds of the songs. So let's give 25 seconds of first person shooter a listen.
3: Big as the Super
0: Bowl, but the difference is it's just two guys playing that they did in the studio. Usually,
7: send say they bad to me, and they be terrible, just like a two year old. I love a dinner with some fine
4: women when they start debating about who to go. I'm like, go ahead, say it then. Who to the go? Who to go? Who to go?
0: Yeah, so Laura, the first single on the new album I thought was like a little too slow jammy and just like a sound that I'd got kind of bored of with Drake. But my gosh, this guy can still put out a hype track, and I just love the way he plays with anticipation and percussion, and he just changes levels on you in the middle of a verse. I, like He is just spectacular when he's doing that kind of stuff.
2: I guess so. I mean, this song had. I. I I'm. I'm not gonna. I don't want to hate on Drake too much. I thought the first single, the lyrics were really misogynistic, uh, which seemed to be a theme throughout the album. There was nothing in this album. I listened to it in its an hour and a half long entirety last night. There was just nothing that caught me. Nothing mm. that got stuck in my head. I felt like maybe drake just needs to be in a maybe we get more interesting lyrics if he was in a healthier relationship i don't know um but yeah i mean i could see this this was maybe one of the catchier tracks on the album there was there's you know it's it's obviously it's well produced and you know he does have talent but i just was pretty bored with
0: this album overall okay you know look at this we're finding a little bit of common ground here although we tried to end that on love and didn't quite get there laura have an awesome weekend talk to you on tuesday
2: (laughs) Yeah, thanks,
0: Dave. That's Laura Bain with the Entertainment Report. Coming up next, the entertainment conversation continues. Netflix dropped a new gothic miniseries by Mike Flanagan. Michael McNeely will review The Fall of the House of Usher. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. This afternoon, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, Kelly and Rumya hit the airwaves once again. It's going to be a good show. A couple interesting topics on deck, including Twitter's plans to charge new users $1 per year. Now, they're rolling that out in only a couple of countries. But John Bueller will share the details in the app update. By the way, that rollout is not uh, going to be starting in Canada, so you don't need to check your pocketbook just yet. Then, in the world of sports, how are teams faring one week into the NHL season? You're very familiar with Brock Richardson's work. He'll stop by their show to talk some sports and talk a little hockey. Plus, an author who uses a pseudonym has been blowing up on social media Ryan Huey will reveal who it is in his chatty bookshelf segment. Pseudonym about pseudonyms and more pseudonyms. Catch Kelly and Ramya today, 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI or on demand on your favorite podcasting platform. Just search for Kelly and Ramya. Once you're there, search for Now with Dave Brown and then you can subscribe, like, review, give five stars, share with your friends. Be like, this is Dave Brown. He's smart. He's funny. Or be like, this Dave Brown is really annoying. You should hate listen to him. That's an option as well. Nazreen Abdelmajid is standing by. And John Lepke, you've got a topic for the round table. I sure do.
1: So on yesterday's show, we heard from the content creator or curator for McLean's Magazine on AMI-audio, Don Dickinson, about an article that identified some underrated travel destinations in Canada. Now, CBC is reporting that air travel provider Canadian North is partnering with Air Greenland to provide a route from Nook, the capital of Greenland, to Ottawa. Ooh, with an additional stop in Iqaluit. It will, be in Ca- it will be Canada North's first foray into the international market. Now, this isn't the first time Air Greenland has greenlit. See what I did there? <laughs> a route like this. But the last time a flight was regularly scheduled between the seats of government was 2014, So, Nazreen, what's one place that you wish you could travel to, but there just aren't the flights to get there?
8: I mean, I wouldn't say there it's impossible. It's just very hard. So Mm -hmm. I've always dreamt about seeing the Northern Lights. Yes. And I I dreamt about it for the longest time. And I want to go see, like, in Norway, Alaska. There's so many. There's quite a few places that you can see it, but it's seasonal. There's specific times. There's specific locations. And it's very difficult to see it. And it's very difficult to get there too. And there's only so much I can deal with the cold. And a lot of these places, it's obviously um, in the wintertime.
0: Yeah.
8: yeah. <laughs> and just the thought of, you know, being in gloves and jackets and everything, it's, it's already stressing me out. So I wouldn't say it's impossible. It's just very difficult to get there. So one day I'm going to have the guts and I'm going to make it my mission to get there.
0: Yeah, you know, John, there's something here where it's maybe not just a matter of whether or not there's a flight that gets you proximal, it's the logistics that go along with it. So from Nizreen mm-hmm. in my perspective, as people who are uh, legally blind, There's no driving for us, right? So I would also like to see the Northern Lights, and certainly I can fly to Sudbury or fly to Thunder Bay or fly to Oslo or fly to Grand Prairie, Alberta. The problem is, just because you get to those places doesn't mean you still don't have to travel a little bit further out of that city Mm -hmm. to actually get away from the light pollution to truly experience those Northern Lights in all of their glory. That said, Nazreen, I think you're thinking about this the wrong way. You've got to rent one of these like cottage that has like the domed roof so you can just yes. lie in your in your Alaskan king size bed and like look up at the northern lights in the warmth of your cabin so, so I have thought about some of these logistics but John that also goes to where one of the places that I'd really like to visit is the Maldives as soon as I saw mm. David Beckham and Victoria Beckham's mansion in the Maldives <laughs> I said to myself that is a place that I would like to go but John from Toronto to the Maldives off the west coast of India that's about as far from home as i could possibly travel and it requires a multitude of flights and then a boat to get to the resort that i want to get to let alone you know victoria and david's house where i'm probably not welcome
1: that's that's fair enough i mean if only we could all base our lives off of uh uh, david and victoria beckham's uh spending habits (laughs)
0: Uh, their Netflix series apparently is a lot of fun, by the way, uh, the the David and Victoria Noted. or whatever or whatever it's called. John, what about you? Where do you want to Noted. travel to that might be a little bit logistically complicated?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, for me, you know, you mentioned the lack of driving. I, I also don't drive. It's not because of the CP. It's because of the anxiety disorder. Um, uh, one place that I've always wanted to try to figure out is venice in italy it's not that i can't fly there it's what the heck are the logistics to make all of this work and and how can i how can i how can i navigate those uh, wonderful
0: canals right like like if you're using a mobility device how on earth do you get around venice
1: yeah, uh, sorry, I probably should tell listeners and, and watchers that, uh, that I'm a wheelchair user. So I know that it's not impossible. I know people have, have tried it, um, but uh, yeah, I've, I've yet to get the guts.
0: You know, Nazreen, this flight to Greenland might actually be the answer to your Northern Lights problem, but I get the impression that Greenland might also be uh, a little cold uh, based on the standards you're talking about. I actually have this great business idea, and I'm going to tell only you two, if you're watching this at home right now, put the TV on mute. I don't want you to hear this Dave Brown consulting <laughs> idea. I was thinking about building a Northern Lights resort north of Grand Prairie, Alberta, because I imagine land is fairly cheap. You're still close to like a fairly sizable town in Canada, and Alberta has some pretty liberal uh, laws around some of the recreational activities I could set up around my Northern Lights Resort. So I don't know. I, th- I think like a Northern Lights Resort in Northern Alberta with a bunch of these domed cottages that I was talking about, in Nazarene. I think there could be some money-making opportunities here. But I swear, if you're at home right now, put me on camera one here. I'm looking right at the camera. If you... Are at home right now and you're trying to steal my idea. You better not do it. Dave Brown Consulting, patent pending. Uh, John, I'm going to get back to your yep. actual topic here. I just wanted to talk a I wanted to talk to the listener directly. You need a to get that off your chest. It's all good. Small airports. And there are a lot of mm-hmm. small airports in this world. I've been to a teensy tiny one in Dawson City, Yukon. This airport was tiny. Like, it was literally an airstrip. That was it in Dawson, Yukon. That's the smallest one I've been to. Nazreen, what's the smallest airport you've been to?
8: The smallest one was in Santorini, Greece, and it it was just from security to the gate straight away. You there's barely any space to go anywhere so it was actually really nice but it was very tiny i wasn't used to that (laughs) and it was very helpful because i don't need to walk to the end of the world to get to my gate i'm always at the end of the airport to get to my gate so that was pretty nice
0: there's really something to be said about small airports that's why i will sing the praises of ottawa's airport every time i get the opportunity to do it it's worth taking a train to ottawa from toronto just to avoid pearson if you can and fly out of ottawa if you're flying to the u.s john what's the smallest airport that you've been to
1: yeah, so I spent a lot of, of time in my youth playing parasport within within Pearson, and I always you know you'd see the sign rated best best airport in Canada or whatever, and you go who is doing these ratings? <laughs> yeah. um, the smallest city that I've flown into in my memory is a, a town called uh, Champaign, Illinois. It's the
0: home of the University of Illinois. Fighting Illini. Eight,
1: flights, eight Yep, eight flights a day.
0: It, like that's it. Eight flights a day. That's all it that comes to the airport.
1: Eight flights a day, most of them go to Chicago because if you live 45, Champaign's about 45 minutes from Chicago, I think, most people would just drive to chicago but it turns out when you flood uh Champaign, illinois with a bunch of parasport athletes you flood an entire plane with parasport athletes to the point where they can't find somebody physically capable of sitting in the
0: emergency seat oh no, oh dear oh my <laughs> no that's <laughs> no that's an experience right there yeah the notion of these uh, short flights versus short drives i'll never understand why someone would fly from ottawa to montreal it's an hour and 47 minutes on the train it can be even less in the car i have no idea why someone would spend an hour on an airplane to fly from Ottawa to Montreal. Although, once again, I'm departing from the actual topic of conversation here. Uh, Air travel, I've expressed this before, not my favorite thing in the world. I'm a little too wide-bodied to uh, truly enjoy the experience. (laughs) But there are parts of it that I do like. For whatever reason, I find, Nasreen, a beer tastes so good when I'm 10,000 feet in the air. I love just listening to a podcast, putting my headphones on, and having a little sip of beer when I'm on an airplane. What's your favorite part of the air travel experience?
8: uh would it be the coffee time um <laughs> uh honestly i love traveling i love it so much yes long uh commutes long flights are very hard especially with a person with um disability like arthritis where it's very difficult to stay sitting and yeah. you know tight spaces and everything so Long flights can be difficult, but in general, I get so excited. I, I get so excited about waiting right before the plane, right before uh, departing uh, on the plane. So, I I just get excited about getting there early, getting a cup of coffee, and then okay. going just relaxing, just getting you know processing the vacation time
0: anticipation. But-
8: the anticipation. The anticipation, yeah, that's my I favorite
0: like part. that. John, I like uh, also the judgment-free nature of being able to buy peanut M&M's and just eat them in the middle of the afternoon on a plane. Uh, <laughs> less less than 30 seconds here, John, your favorite part of yeah. air travel. Uh, I'm that guy that
1: always strikes up a conversation with the person that's sitting next to him. I'm sure I'm discouraged of a number Ugh. of people's experiences. Um, but uh, I always enjoy uh, having a conversation because it usually starts with, So why the wheelchair? And then we can go from there.
0: I, uh, I don't mind a quick aside with my new neighbor on the plane, but at a certain point, the headphones are going back in, and I'm just going to enjoy my <laughs> yeah, solo time. Yeah. That's all the time there is today. That's all the time there is this week. Until Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun like we do every week at the end of the show. We say thank you to the folks who work so hard to put this show together every day. So let's say it together,
3: gang. Roll those credits host, Dave Brown. Co host, producer, Alex Smythe. Sports reporter, Brock Richardson. Contributors, Rami Amuthan, Nazreen Abdelmajid. Senior show producer, Endrika Delanerol. Visual producer, Bruce McLarion. Producers, Paul Daniel, Marianne Dion Jones. Production assistant, Kingsley Juco. Director, Anastasia Spalding Stenhouse. Control Room Operators, Daniel Panamondo, Eliza Rocco, Parker Oxtoby. Manager of Operations, Kyle Harper. Manager of Live Production, Paula Dineen. Director of Content Development, Kara Nye. Vice President of Programming, John Melville. President and CEO, David Errington. Give us your feedback. 1-866-509-4545. Copyright 2023, Accessible Media Inc. An AMI original production.
0: Welcome back. It's Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The Fall of the House of Usher was recently released on Netflix. The Gothic miniseries is by Mike Flanagan. Before Michael McNeely stops by for a review, here's a clip. From the show's trailer,
7: Your Honor, no matter how much evidence stacked against them, the Usher crime family stands stronger and darker
0: than ever before. Around a grand table,
1: anyone comes after us, we will exhaust our arsenal until the threats neutralized.
0: By neutralized, do you mean in sued into oblivion on the streets?
1: Neutralized, like dead. You guys, we really should get together more often. It's just a balm for the soul.
0: From the creator of The Haunting of Hill House.
4: Roderick Usher. Your family is a collection of stunted hearts. This time has come.
3: A sultry woman in a skull mask enters a party. Who are you? Consequential.
2: And tonight is consequential.
3: A woman
0: glances toward a passing hooded figure. Another woman shakes in fear. A person in a beam of light falls. Another woman gapes. Acid showers partiers. A light shatters. I'm
2: going to head out. I've got an appointment with your dad.
0: Michael McNeely has thoughts on the series. Michael is an entertainment critic. Good morning,
4: Michael. Hi, good morning. It's a dark and stormy morning, Mrs. Poopwing, I guess.
0: Yeah, it's moodin' and brooding for a show like this. Michael, even with that trailer, a little more context is needed here about the show's premise. How would you set this up without giving away too, too much?
4: Well, this is a bit of a complicated story, but what we have is the Fortunato family one extremely wealthy from their drunken empire, their medication-drunken empire, and... I'm trying to remember how to pronounce opioid. I hope that's how you pronounce it. Uh, Opioid. Opioid. Yes. Okay, so they've been selling uh, painkillers, just like the Sackler family did. And they know that the painkillers are essentially bad for people who take them because they cause addiction, and they've created their fortune on that alone. So as we start the series, we realize that six, six children of the Fortunato family are dead and the Fortunato family has been taken to court because of their transgressions of medical efforts. So there's two things going on there. And it seems that the Fortunato family is going to crash and burn, given the title of the series. Ultimately, the series is about what caused the fall of the House of Usher, what caused the fall of the Fortunato Empire, and why those children died.
0: So the person behind the series is Mike Flanagan, who's made a couple of different miniseries for Netflix that have been well received. One of the techniques that he uses in storytelling is non-linear storytelling, messing around with time. How effective was that in the series?
4: Well, first, just to mention that Mike Flanagan had a five television series deal with Netflix that is now over. He's done very well by all accounts, and he's now being poached by Amazon Prime. So he will be taking his, his actors there, and he will be doing at least, uh, I believe, two movies and a series. Oh, wow. So I'm excited, I'm excited for that. Um, I think Netflix is missing out by letting him go. So with regards to his, um, of actors, he works well with these, I would assume friends by now, because they keep coming back for various projects. And I think all of them are more or less character actors. That meant that sometimes I did not recognize them. For example, if you look at the, uh, the courtroom scene, the Fortunato family lawyer is actually played by Mark Hamill who you know is Luke Skywalker. I completely miss that. And it just shows how great an actor Mark Hamill is, and that's one of um, Mike Flanagan's favorite people. Also, we have Henry Thomas as one of the children, and we have Samantha Lewin as one of the other children. They're both white, and they're both the biological children of of, um, Roderick Usher. and so that's important to know, because the other four children that died were adopted, and these two children may, may or may not be important. Again, I think it's just fun to see all the actors in different roles, and it's it's interesting to see how many you recognize and how many you don't. Mm. I think one of the most interesting things that I learned is, you know, when you, when you have a wig, it can look very different. So it's uh, something interesting to take home with me. I, I did wanna mention,
0: I sort of talked about how Mike Flanagan's work has been well-received. I would say the most well-received series that he did was The Haunting of Hill House, which people really, really liked. I, I haven't seen it yet, but largely speaking, that's been the one that really got people fired up. This one, The Fall of the House of Usher, is also a miniseries, eight episodes. What did you think of the length of this series and the pace of those eight episodes? Well, I think it's good that I didn't
4: get another season because I think that the story is, is contained in just eight episodes. Personally, I thought it was a bit long, so I think maybe six episodes would have subsist. But um, you could also do more things with the plot if you want to make the eight, season, the eight episodes Um, I, I think what we talked about is the plan around with time. I forgot to answer that question for you. But uh, the play in a well with time is essentially the the main aspect of the series is that the prosecutor is asking questions about the family, trying to understand what happened to the family, and I guess I just wanted those questions to be answered faster, because I was just anticipating, I was just waiting for the secrets to be revealed. So I don't know if that's. What, what was expected to be, you know, on my edge of my seat and what an answer sooner, or if it was just too long. I think I have to leave it up to the experts, storytellers, for that. Mm. But I think sometimes the answers that I received did not seem to be worth it for the wait, and other answers that I received were worth it. So I think I was just more eager to know why those children died, and I know now but I wish I had known sooner, maybe. You know, pace
0: matters, Michael. Like, especially in a story like this, the pace you tell the story really, really matters. And I always wonder if it's a lack of confidence in the storyteller, a lack of confidence in their ending. If they feel their ending is good enough, that they'll try to rush through their ending just to go so fast that your head spins down the tail end, rather than really letting you digest the ending. I always wonder if it might be a lack of confidence in the actual in in their actual dismount in the story.
4: Well, I think there's I think this the opposite. There's two days. There's enough time. To understand the ending, I think I, I don't want to wound anything, but the ending is pretty much given away by the beginning. Okay. So <laughs> and then once you once you realise that, once you realise how he tricked you at the beginning, then you start to appreciate that this comes into full circle. Okay. So one of those things. So I think I think the confidence is there. I think, yeah, I think it. I think maybe it might be just that I streamed it too fast. You know what I mean? Maybe just yeah, it should yeah, yeah. It. But it's a Halloween thing. I mean, obviously, you have to finish it by Halloween to get the best results. No, I'm joking. I'm I'm happy with all Halloween things last and all year. Uh, Michael,
0: The the, the Fall of the House of Usher is loosely based on a short story by Edgar Allan Poe. Obviously, this was modernized. (laughs) Edgar Allan Poe was writing this stuff uh, nearly a century and a half ago. What did you think of the effort that Flanagan put in to translate something that is so old into a modern context.
4: Um ultimately I haven't read the whole House of Hazard short story. I know at the beginning. Um, and I think it's important to mention that the House of Usher, the mini-series, is also based on other short stories by Edgar Allan Poe, as well as some of his longer works, if I'm not mistaken. I think it's kind of like a post cinematic universe because Everything comes in here, you've got the black cat, you've got the telltale heart, it have got a short story called Fortunato, which is on the nose for the name of the company. Um, I think the fall of the house of ushers the story of a group of wealthy people, a family of wealthy people that get their trust desserts. So ultimately that's what you get here. Um, But I think just to say it's that one short story would be missing out all the others. I think Mr. Flanagan has huge respect for Edgar Allan Poe, and I think it's very nice to have him refreshed for modern generations. Maybe getting rid of some of the problematic aspects of his his writing, like racism, and just making just making his stories more palatable. I think I think for sure. The fall of a pharmaceutical company is definitely ripe for this time, and I'm hoping that we'll get to talk about Emily Blunt and painkillers next month, Mrs. is coming from Netflix. But um, I think that's just a story of riches to rags. What's your final critique
0: of the fall of the House of Usher? Would you recommend it? I
4: think I would recommend it I recommend that people would take their time with it and just to let the mood and atmosphere soak in and to enjoy the time with the actors that are probably playing, playing bad people this time. And they've seen them play good people before, but I think it's a good Halloween story, and I, I, I did enjoy it, even though I thought I was a bit long. Michael, thank you for this. Have a nice weekend. No problem. I think right now is the time to cue thunder and lightning in my disappearance.
0: <laughs> thunder and lightning and very, very frightening. That's entertainment critic Michael McNeely. The Fall of the House of Usher is streaming on Netflix. It is rated MA for mature audiences. Coming up next, what's a place you wish you could travel that you can't get there by flying? Complex logistics to get to places i actually got it more than one. A lot of places I want to go that I can't get to. Anyway, John Lepke is going to pose that question to myself and Nazreen Abdel-Majid. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The now News Panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Michelle McQuig and Joyda Gupta. One more topic to discuss, and it's about housing. I kept it to the end, though, because you've heard us talk about housing ad nauseum So just quick takes on short-term rentals. Governments are taking aim at short-term rentals like Airbnb. B.C. is following Quebec and Nova Scotia with stricter regulations around short-term rentals. The legislation will permit short-term rentals, I'm saying that word a lot, in homes where the owner is the principal resident but looks to rein in operators of multiple properties. Provincial Housing Minister Ravi Collin explains some more of the policy.
1: Through this legislation, we'll be giving local governments the ability to increase the fines for hosts breaking municipal bylaws, rules from $1,000 to $3,000 per infraction per day. We're also making sure people are playing by the rules by making mandatory short-term
0: rental platforms to share their listing data for homes throughout B.C. Federal Finance Minister Chris Freeland also chimed in on the issue. Our government is actively examining what options and tools exist at the federal level to ensure more short-term rentals are made available as long-term rentals, as permanent homes. Joita, only a couple minutes here on the clock, so we've got to be efficient. I've talked till I'm blue in the face about some concerns I have about Airbnbs and short-term rentals flooding the housing market, especially when it comes to things like one-bedroom condos, small condos, uh, or more like dense living, and the number of individuals who own multiple properties. I've been very concerned about this for a long time. So what do you think about governments like Nova Scotia, BC, Quebec stepping in here, Better late than never, or maybe, uh, or maybe just sort of uh, an off-target move.
5: No, it's definitely better late than never. It's put a lot of the 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 way that these services like Airbnb and VRBO are being used right now. I think was maybe not the original intent, uh, where you were supposed to maybe rent out a spare room or rent out your apartment or home if you were away. But we're really seeing a lot of commercial operators, and that's what's taken away. Supply from both the rental housing or uh, the rental housing market, but and impacted tenants, but also taken away, but also pushed uh, home prices upwards because now as a potential home buyer, you're up against these big corporations trying to snatch up properties to turn into Airbnbs. So it it is an important uh, piece of the puzzle, but I suspect, and um, this is my cynicism rearing its head, that it's not the only piece, but it's the one that gets the lion's share of the attention because there's mm-hmm. something flashy about going mm-hmm. up against a big yeah. corporation. There's a lot more that can be done on the housing file, but I will say that the BC standard are actually very good they're being referred to as the gold standard so the yeah, rest of the yeah. country may have to play a bit of catch up
0: oh is, is that that's that's the general analysis i know you run in these circles Jay, yeah to, it to is. Keep, yeah michelle you, that that's what you've been picking up too that's what i've seen and heard as well yep yeah, because I know Nova Scotia and Quebec did also put out some some similarish legislation. Uh, Nova Scotia a few weeks ago, Quebec earlier this year, in the wake of that fire in Old Montreal, where nearly where over a dozen people died because of an unregulated uh, short-term rental. But yeah, I, I didn't I didn't realize that that so far the feedback has been this good.
6: It has, yeah. The other thing that's interesting, and Joey, to please uh, as the sort of resident expert on this issue, please jump in anytime if I'm going astray here, but. Uh, the other comparison that's being drawn a lot is to what New York City is trying to do to try mm-hmm. and rein things in, and that's where BC is is being seen as a, as a good example because it struck more of a balance. The The rules that are being brought in in the, some of the other Canadian provinces were largely seen as not effective enough. New York was largely seen as going a bit too far in that they put a lot of, they, they greatly restricted things that most, properties where it would then be out of the mix there was a pretty complex system to get them registered bc has some components of that plan but a few fewer restrictions and i think that's part of why it's being seen as a gold standard because it seems to have threaded the needle best in terms mm-hmm. of the different regulatory approaches that we're seeing here so uh, i think that's partially why it's getting the praises that it is
0: do you have any concern about the onus that's being put on municipalities here i think you see that back and forth a little bit in provinces like ontario and even in nova scotia right now
5: Well, Dave, I mean, municipalities are a creature of the province, right? So I'm not as concerned about the fact that the onus is being put on the municipalities, especially if you look at BC, they do have a provincial enforcement office that's going to be taking this on. And there are exemptions for municipalities that are smaller, primarily resort towns where, you know, they are trying to be very nuanced about this. That's worth noting as well. Mm. No, I, I don't have as much concern about this being downloaded to the municipalities that do have responsibility for a lot of bylaw enforcements, you know, whether it's things like noise or apartment standards and things like that, that's typically things also handled by the municipality um the the thing that i would be concerned about is a lack of funding so i mean it's all well and good to talk but how much money is actually going to get put towards enforcement you can have the best written policy in the world but if you don't have the money to back it up and you can't enforce it well it doesn't do anyone a lot of good
0: yeah michelle any, any thoughts on the municipality side of the conversation
6: especially in fact uh, when I, one thing i found kind of noteworthy is that BC seems to be trying to take a little bit off the municipalities, not just through that provincial enforcement that Joita mentioned, which is another big part of this, right? What what good is any kind of regulation without enforcement? And BC is already putting that in place. Um, But they're also trying to shift the onus onto the platforms themselves to delist uh, properties that don't meet the standards. Uh, Raises questions about how effective that's going to be, but they do seem to be trying to take that particular burden off the municipalities, and apparently that can be a really time-consuming process, Um, involving a lot of resources. So they seem to at least have municipalities on their minds as they craft this policy. Um, A lot of details to still to shake out in the wash, but I don't think it's wrong to have municipalities as the primary person involved here. Uh, If that's still what's happening, because that's frankly where where the most of the impact is felt is
0: at the municipal level. I'm sure I'm sure people in Kelowna don't want people on Vancouver Island uh, telling them how to enforce their bylaws. Yeah, that there's probably some sense. There's probably some sense to that. Uh, Real quick on the way out here, I I do want to say there is a flip side. Like, I don't think short term rentals are by their nature completely evil. I've had some really good experience, especially with renting things like cottages on VRBO. Like, that's where I really think there's some merit here where they belong. Along in the broader market, Chuita, but I do kind of feel like leave cities to hotels.
5: Yes, exactly. I mean, it's well and good for cottage rentals. And I've had a diversity of, of uh, housing. When I was in Marseille, I rented an entire apartment in Marseille. And that whole apartment building, I think, was primarily uh, Airbnbs. And I was thinking to myself, my goodness, this could have all been places where people live and if we think our housing situation is bad it's sometimes worth thinking about what the housing crisis is like yeah, in places like yeah. paris and london
0: <laughs> yeah like michelle cool for, <laughs> cool for cool for the consumer uh maybe not great for the market totally. more broadly. <laughs>
5: No. Yeah, totally.
6: It, it, it is great for the consumer. And and there's an interesting argument that's been floated, too, that it can be great for the local economy if, it, if it's used mm-hmm. properly and reined in. Because if people are coming to explore a city and want to stay cheaply in someone's apartment, they are. They're going to be out and exploring, taking in venues, hitting up restaurants, all that kind of stuff. So there are economic arguments to be made as well. But the uh, I think the the beast we're seeing today is very different than what was initially envisioned, and these measures are an effort to kind of get things back on the original page. Don't know how successful it'll be, but we yeah. shall
0: see. Yeah, the most recent annual report from uh, my particular condo board showed that over fifty percent of the units in the building were renters, right? And like that's a mm. that's sort of a stunning number. Now, no, obviously those aren't just, those, those aren't just you Airbnbs, know. right? Like a lot of it is just genuine renters. But yeah, yeah. it's it's pretty stunning when you see pretty, those numbers growing. Pretty normal. Yeah, we don't
5: have Airbnbs in our building. Well, we put a ban on it. That's
0: a- right right yeah a few a lot of condo boards have done that too okay that's it and, uh, you, you
5: actually got me wondering if we've done the same thing because i i know
6: my i'm in a small unit with like 80 80 units or so and we know most of each other and i haven't seen any Airbnb people okay, around so we all see. right
0: i just like <laughs> it when people bring new dogs because i can play with new dogs in the park that's <laughs> right nice uh that's it totally. gotta, gotta get out of here michelle's gonna be late for work if we don't say goodbye right now so joita have a great weekend
5: thank you you too
0: michelle you enjoy your weekend as well talk to you on sunday and then talk to you again on monday morning
6: Sounds good. Take care,
0: everyone. That's Joyita Gupta, the host of The Pulse on AMI-audio. Michelle McQuig is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up after the break, it's the regional news updates. And then Brock Richardson stops by for what's going to be another amazing weekend in the world of sports. So we'll chat about it. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back, it's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's the Friday news panel with Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. Let's address our next topic. The province of Quebec wants to double tuition for out-of-province students. Tuition for Canadians outside Quebec will jump to $17,000. That's up from just under $9,000. Higher Education Minister Pascal Derry says Quebec taxpayers should not subsidize people who may not stay in the province after graduating. There are some exemptions to the policy. So out-of-province and international students who have already started their studies in Quebec will be exempt. Students who come to Quebec as part of international agreements, like uh, some that are made with both France and Belgium, or out-of-province students enrolled in graduate programs, graduate programs. Joita, why'd this story capture your attention?
5: To be honest with you, I was curious about your take on the story, but with that <laughs> said, <laughs> but with that said, I, um, I'm not sure if this is the case anywhere else in the province. As far as I know, uh, yes, there are two classes of students. There are domestic students who may live in uh, different parts of Canada, who pay the same fee, regardless of their, uh, you know, regardless of whether they reside in in the province in which the university is located. And then, of course, you've got on the other side international students who, uh, in many parts of Canada, pay a much higher fee to attend. And that's how it's been for a number of years across many provinces and many different institutions. Now, though, it looks like if this with this policy uh, in place in Quebec, it looks like students who are out of province from quebec are being treated analogous to international students unless of course you're an international student from belgium or france who seem to be getting a better deal than english-speaking students from across canada so it's a fascinating story because it what the justification for the policy is is apparently a desire to protect and preserve the French language. And so there are a a lot of knock-on effects of this policy, Mm -hmm. and I would be really curious about how other provinces retaliate and what this means for federalism.
0: Okay, so, Joita, you asked a question, and I have an answer for you. Out-of-province students in Quebec have always been charged more. I think what made this story so jarring is the increase by which uh, out-of-province students will now be charged. They've, They've always had to pay more to go to school in Quebec, but it used to be moderate. But now mm-hmm. the number for a Canadian outside of Quebec to study in Quebec is getting much closer to the international student number, which is around $20,000 a year. So, so you're right to identify that this is a stark increase, but it's not necessarily a new policy in terms of, like, black and white on ink. It's just the number by which it's gone up. Michelle, your generalized thoughts on a Quebec's policy here.
6: Yeah, I, I, what really strikes me is how consistent this is with this government's approach to French language issues. Uh, this is a government that has made it extremely clear time and again that defending the French language and bolstering the French language and seeing ex- expanded use in the public service is a top priority. They've gotten into a lot of trouble over it. They forged on anyway. And this particular policy seems to me really targeted because there are Let's count them. One, two, three English language universities in Quebec. That's who's mm-hmm. going to really feel the effects of this the most. I do find it very interesting that they're still allowing grad students to maintain the the, the rate. Because when I first read this, I thought, are they trying to shut these universities down? Is that their end game is to try and push them out of the game? The fact that they're allowing grad students to, or not putting these extra burdens on grad students makes me wonder because that's where a lot of the prestige of a university comes from. It's under yeah, graduate work. Yeah. So that kind of counters that particular narrative. Nonetheless, it is going to be a very devastating move for these English language universities. And there are some you know, McGill is one of the crown jewels of Canadian universities. Yes. It's, it's a top tier university. Eh. Um it, it's
0: I spent I spent I spent, well, I sp- I sp- I spent four years there. Eh. I was <laughs> dragging, if anything, I was dragging it down.
6: it's okay we got michael Leontano out in concordia upping the game for everyone else exactly exactly Um, (laughs) (laughs) hey mike if you're listening anyway no like this this seems to be very targeted and part of a broader agenda and that's what really jumps out at me and i i I feel like they're largely not going to face a lot of retaliation on this I, i don't know exactly how much can be done but this is a very striking instance of this government taking a stance but this time in a way that it does have more ripple effects beyond the province's borders that hasn't been the case as much
0: before yeah again again i think just the jarringness of the number right Mm -hmm. the policy is not brand new but the jarringness of the number certainly impacts people you have to bear in mind that Quebec, by far, for residents of the province, is the cheapest university in the country. The government spends a ton of money subsidizing undergraduate programs. Listen, my experience 20 years ago is not relevant to today, right? Uh, 20 years ago, I was in university. But I will tell you this, including student fees and tuition, in an undergraduate poli-sci degree, I was paying $2,500 a year because of the heavy wow. subsidization subsidia- wow. for- uh, That's amazing. Yeah. for for like, in, for like for yeah. like in province students, so like like this like this really matters. Quebec mm-hmm. also has very generous uh, student loan and student grant programs. The province of Quebec has always put a huge investment in post secondary education. I would also suggest just the creation of the CJE pathway. Their pre university college pathway is also one of the smartest ideas in Canada in terms of letting seventeen and eighteen year olds figure out their path for a couple of years before they go to university, yes. but get totally. them out of high school. Like, like, there's a lot of stuff Quebec is doing right here. And, Michelle, you are right that they are consistent in—this th- government is consistent in their priority in regards to protecting the French language, and I find yeah. this policy to be a lot less concerning, at least in the short term. I find this to be a lot less concerning than some of the more stringent and strict, what I'll call, cultural restrictions mm-hmm. they've put in place. Mm-hmm. Those really concern me, like, not being able to wear religious symbols. Uh, really restricting the use of uh, the public's access to utilizing English for government services. I think a lot of that is more nefarious than this. But Joita, you said the word long-term, the ripple effect. Mm. I do think that this policy could have a really negative impact on the city of Montreal specifically, but the yes. province as a whole. Because the culture of the city is vibrant because of two incredible English language universities in the city and two mm-hmm. incredible French language universities in the city. Four of four gargantuan great academic institutions, McGill, Concordia, UCAM, and UDM, are all top notch schools. And if you and if you think think about the artistic culture that thrives in Montreal, a lot of that, Juita, is because of people coming from all over the continent and the country to be part of a cultural base, an artistic cultural base in Montreal. And I don't think it's going to ripple out in the short term. But mm-hmm. 10 years down the line, I think this could have a really negative impact on my old hometown.
5: Yeah, absolutely. And also on the uh, on the universities in question, I mean, already, uh, Miguel and Concordia are talking about how hard they're going to be hit from a budgetary standpoint. Uh, I know that um, it's grad work that brings a lot of prestige to the university, but it's undergraduates that pay a lot of the bills. Yeah, yeah. I think yep, it's yep, a reality. Yep. You can't yep. get away from the numbers. And so I think uh, there are going to be knock-on effects on that. The other thing that's really interesting to me, and we've had this conversation about healthcare is where if you live in Canada, anywhere across the country, you should have access to the same uh, or types of healthcare. That, that's, there's a question of equity there. And so when you look at the, the mobility clause in the constitution, it also talks about how Can- Canadians have the right to live and work anywhere across the country. And you've really got to wonder what the effects of a policy like this would be whether Canadians from outside the province of Quebec would opt to live or work in um in, in Quebec, and whether or not, you know, maybe as a bit in a bid to preserve the French language, if it's actually infringing to an extent on the constitutional rights of all Canadians to live and work anywhere in the province. Now granted the constitution doesn't uh-huh. ag- go ahead and spell out that uh, you know, you're not allowed to discriminate, uh, and nor does the constitution spell out education, but that's why we might end up seeing a legal challenge down the road based on the mobility clause of the constitution. And since I brought up the constitution, you'll ask, but you know, couldn't they just use the not good standing clause? Well, I, sorry about the nerdiness of this all, but I actually went and checked and it's one of the clauses that's exempt from the use of the notwithstanding clause. So I would be very interested to see, you're saying a a retaliation is unlikely, but I would be very interested to see if it does lead to some kind of a a legal challenge and what the outcome of that might be.
0: But again, I want to reiterate, like this idea of charging out of province students more is not new, right? So if, if there had been it's a legal a, challenge mm-hmm. mounted, it would yeah. have been mounted a long time ago. I want to offer some uh, numbers for context here. You know, Dave Brown, this guy loves numbers, mathematician Brown over here. What do you guys think the uh, average tuition for an undergraduate uh, at the University of Toronto is?
5: Probably now about six, seven, eight thousand dollars. for just a BA, yeah, yes,
0: yeah, six thousand five hundred yeah, a yeah, year good. was, was okay, the number. Yeah. Was the number that a quick Google search gave me? What do you think it is at uh, UBC out there in Vancouver? Oh, geez,
6: seventy-five. Uh,
3: a
0: little under six, little under six to go to under okay okay okay. Although you got to live in Vancouver, so uh, be ready I to mean, uh, yeah. sell, sell a yeah. limb to uh, to make that work. <laughs> what, what and your first born. You, what do you think? So so again, knowing that international fees in Quebec are around twenty thousand dollars to attend a university, what do you think it costs for an international student at the U of T University of Toronto?
5: Oh my god, too much. Like it's forty, fifty thousand. Like it's it's obscene.
0: Wow, Joita's really good at these numbers. Forty five thousand. You are. Forty-five thousand for for an undergrad for a year of undergraduate at U of T. What what about UBC? You got that, Joita? Let's see.
5: No, sorry. I wasn't on the governing council for UBC, <laughs> okay. but I was on the governing council for U of T. Oh, I
0: didn't realize I was asking an insider these questions. <laughs> Michelle, your get your guests on UBC. I,
5: I was gonna say I'm not even gonna bother, but now I'll
6: take a start at it. Um thirty eight boom on the pin Dude, that was just luck sorry.
0: ding ding <laughs> ding anyway i just i just i just think like sort of on the way out in this conversation it's worth offering some of those numbers for context that that although domestically It's about to get very expensive for a Canadian to go to school in Quebec from outside Quebec. There's still going to be a lot of international students who are going to be looking closely at Quebec because the price is so much lower. And I wonder if that might be the uh, government uh, biting off its nose to spite its face, Michelle. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I don't don't know. I don't know. I don't know. know. the,
5: The one other thing that I was thinking about is what happens to francophones who live outside the province of Quebec if they want to get a French language education, do they end up paying $17,000 for a year of undergrad?
0: Yeah, Franco-Ontarians or uh, Franco-Ontarians.
5: Franco-Ontarians yeah. Yeah. any yeah. other minority.
0: Or, yeah. yeah, folks yeah. in New Brunswick, too. To, so yeah.
6: yeah. I, like I feel like there's some French language clauses that might mitigate that, but I could be wrong. But we talked about some of the knock-on effects, and we were already seeing one immediate one from McGill, who had to cancel a fifty million dollar investment in a French language program. Funnily <laughs> enough, um, because of the now expected financial pressures they're going to face, because this rule kicks in for next year's tuition. So every all the money's locked in for this current school year. But people who are shopping around for universities now are the ones who are going to have yeah. to make some, to do some, you know, revise yeah. their math a little bit as they consider their options. Uh,
0: so uh, again, though, their the exemption is if you're already in one of these programs, you're grandfathered in through the through your through your undergraduate degree. Yes.
6: Yeah, exactly. So none of none yeah. of this kicks in until until next year, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we're you know in these efforts to target English language instruction on one level, we, we do see that there can be resimurable effects on French language instruction as well. Uh, so I I I do find this particular policy a little baffling, especially in light of the fact that it triggered immediate outrage. Like it's just. A, this government seems to love chasing controversy. Yeah. Time and again, they make these <laughs> announcements and they they have a very thick skin. They, they they seem impervious to the pushback that they face and they forge ahead. And so far they have been successful in getting their agenda largely implemented.
0: And and this one is very popular. Like like like, th- like this priority of protecting the French language is very popular for the Coalition Avenir Quebec mm-hmm. and Premier Francois Legault. Like it's 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 actually reminds yes. me a little bit of Danielle Smith, the premier in Alberta, where there's a certain degree of we don't care what you think in Ontario or Nova Scotia, we're just going to do our own thing. We have our own priority and our choir likes it when we sit, when we give them this tune to sing. So I, I do think that there's a certain sense of someone watching this this morning who might be in Quebec because, by the way, there are people in Quebec who are also not happy with this. They think they think it's a bad idea. But I sure. I bet you if someone who's a CAC supporter, a Coalition Avenir Quebec supporter, was watching this this morning, they would say, look at this Anglophone Montrealer and a bunch of Torontonians taking pot shots at us this is popular. We like it. And I th- and I will say, sitting in this chair, Very fair. it's yep. way less nefarious than some of the other nonsense this government has done. Mm-hmm. And let's <laughs> leave it there. Coming up next, governments are taking aim at short-term rentals like Airbnb. How does that fit into the broader issue of the housing crisis? This is the Now News panel on AMI-tv. <laughs>
4: and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.